Father, as we contemplate another moment in this last night of Christ's life, you will help us to understand and to embrace all that you desire for us to know. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a culture that is, I think you could describe competitive. You know, we have competition in the business world, there's competition in the world of education, there's competition in the world of athletics, uh, there's competition in our homes, you know, who, who can um, learn this the fastest, who can, who can accomplish that the quickest. We, we love competition, and as a culture, we, we almost thrive on competition. You know, the thing you, you hear from people where they say it, they're thinking it, you know, that what the goal is to be able to declare, we're number one. You know, we, we are the winners. We, we got the top spot. And everything we do, we're continually thinking about being number one, being the greatest, being first. And in one sense, that's okay. Because this, this drive to, to be better, this drive to be more than we are is what has created a lot of the things that we now use in our lives and give thanks for and take for granted. A lot of those things happen because someone wasn't willing to settle for, it's just going to be like this, but I want to move forward and I want to do better and I want to keep growing and getting, getting to the top. But competition can also turn ugly. It becomes a, a matter of competition is more about how can I defeat my enemy than... How can I gain and do more of what I'm doing? I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a news story that broke this week that the New Orleans Saints football team has discovered that one of their coaches was, was paying the players extra money if they injured players on the other team during a game. And the more serious the injury, the more money you, they earned. And, you know, some of the players are saying, hey, that's just the game. It's the way it is. Of course, we look at that and say it's appalling. And the league, I think, is looking at that and saying that's appalling. But that's the kind of thing that can happen when all of, of your existence is about competition, about being the best, about being the greatest. We start doing things that we would never have dreamed we would ever do. There's something in our human nature that wants to be great, wants to be recognized. And that recognition, though having Good parts of it can also have negative parts of it. And it's this negative part that we see unraveling as we get a glimpse of what's going on with the disciples in the 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel. Jesus has shared this meal with them. He has shared what we call the, the last supper with them. And then he talks to them about the fact that one of them is going to betray him. One of them, one of his close friends is going to turn on him. And verse 23 says, um, they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this? And also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And I read that and I think, how do you get from, from I wouldn't betray Jesus to I'm the greatest? As I pondered that, I have this scenario in my mind about the conversation around the table. You know, one of them says, well, I would never betray Jesus. 
And another, I wouldn't betray Jesus. And someone else, well, I would never betray Jesus. I love Jesus. Well, I love Jesus too, and that's why I wouldn't betray Jesus. Well, yeah, I know that, but, you know, I, I, you know let's be honest. I'm a little closer to Jesus than you are. Wait, no, you're not. I'm closer. I, I've been through more things with Jesus than you have. Yeah, but don't you remember that time when Jesus took me and he didn't take you? And well, wait a second. I, I love Jesus just as much as everyone else. And next thing you know, they're almost in a brawl about who loves Jesus the most. And they go from this discussion about who will betray Jesus to an argument about who's the greatest among Jesus. Who, a discussion about who's the least in the kingdom to an argument about who's the best in the kingdom. A discussion about who's the furthest away from Jesus to a discussion and argument about who is closest to Jesus. And all the while I have in my mind this image of this arguing and fighting going on. And here's Jesus sitting there thinking to himself, I can't believe this. I have just poured out my heart to these men. I I have shared with them these deep things of, of what I'm experiencing as I'm about to go to the cross. And here they are fighting about which one of them is the greatest. You almost think he'd be tempted to just get up and walk out of the room. And it's one of those scenarios. You're not even sure if they, how long it would take them to know he was gone. But instead, Jesus stops them. And he says, wait a minute, guys. We have a real big problem here. Because your interpretation of greatness is not mine. I understand your interpretation of greatness. It's the way the rest of the world interprets, interprets greatness. It's all about power and, and it's about wealth and it's about, it's about fame and recognition. And he says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now, this whole thing about being benefactors is an interesting, interesting part of their culture. As far as I can tell, what it means is that it's describing some of the wealthiest people in some of the bigger Roman cities, or the smaller ones for that matter. But in the Roman cities, the people who have the wealth don't pay any taxes. All the other people pay taxes, but not the wealthy. And instead, the wealthy just find out what does the city need to keep it solvent, and they give that money. But it's given in in the way that they want it to be used. And it's in their best interest to keep the city hanging on the balance, teetering on the balance of financial solvency. Because then they can swoop in and give this great gift to the city and all the citizens say, oh, aren't they awesome? They've saved us once again. What they forget is if the wealthy were just paying taxes like everyone else, they would need all of that. But it's a part of the scheme. And so they they give in the way that they want to give. And they use that wealth to hold the city hostage and to manipulate the leaders of the city. And actually, because of their wealth, they become the leaders of the city. But the people look at them as great benefactors because they give this money and it saves them. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's not about using what you have to control people. It's not about manipulating people. It's not about, about making demands on people, making people beholden to you. That's not what my kingdom is about at all. But you know, there's something in us that, that likes people who have some clout. That likes people, we like people who can get some things done. 
You know, we, we want representatives of our nation who will go in and, and as soon as they enter a room, people will say, wow, that's an important person. They carry some weight because then they can get some things done for us. It's probably why besides the fact of her, her citizenship not being here, but even if it were, it's one of the reasons why you'd never find someone like Mother Teresa, for instance, being the president of the United States. That's not how we operate in terms of power and greatness in this world. You know, we, we want to be a part of, of the group that gets recognized. If you think about going to, to a huge banquet, a great state dinner, all the, the wealthy and the famous people are there, and in those settings, you always have the haves and the have-nots. You have people who are there because they have an invitation in their hand. And you have people who at the end of the day walk out with the pay slip in their hands. You have people who, who choose whatever they want to wear and they wear these beautiful gowns and, and tuxedos. And you have people who are dressed in a uniform because that's their job. You have people who arrive in limousines and, and the doors are open for them and they walk up the steps into the building and they're greeted with smiles and handshakes and here, let me take your coat. And you have people who are, who are escorted around to the back of the building where the trash cans are and the empty boxes have been discarded. And they walk in and are greeted with demands and handed an apron. And when we look at those two scenarios, what do we want? We want to be the people with the invitation. And the people who get the, the great welcome at the front door. But Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom works. No wonder we wrestle so much with the demands of the kingdom. Because it's so counterintuitive to our human nature. And it's so countercultural to everything we are told about what makes someone great. Because Jesus says it's not the way other people think of greatness. Instead, as he says in verse 26, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. The word that he uses, serves, it, it's the word that uh, diakonos. And it, it, it's where we get, where we get deacon from. It, we, it's often translated to minister. And he's saying, the people in my kingdom, the people who are great in my kingdom are the people who serve, who minister, who care for people's needs, who, who do the, the work of the church, not to gain accolades, but just because there are needs and they need to be taken care of. And then Je- but Jesus adds this little twist and he talks about being like those who are the youngest. That's a word that means to be something new. It's, it's, it describes a person who's a novice. And eventually it comes to mean often the youngest child in the family. And Jesus is saying we're, we're to be like children if we want to be great in his kingdom. And he has said to them before, unless you become like a little child, you, you cannot enter the kingdom. Now, we think about children. We love children. And, and we embrace them and, and we have a lot of fun with our children. But I don't think we typically think that we should emulate children. We're hoping they emulate us sometimes. 
But you know, we we think about we think about children as as people that that we hope follow our example, not thinking we should follow theirs. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says. Now there's a difference between being childish and being childlike. You know, when you think about being childish, you think about throwing a temper tantrum, holding your breath till you get what you want, take your ball and going home. You know, those are childish things. Childlike is something completely different. When I think of childlike, I think of children who are trusting. Children who have a sense of innocence about the world. Children who are always wanting to learn. You know, what's the favorite word of children? Why? 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 They want to learn. They don't want to, they don't believe they've, they've gotten enough. They're always wanting to, to understand more. I think about children who are satisfied to just rest in the arms of their parents. And when they do, life is okay. I think about children who, who want to be helped. You know, when they ask us, would you help me with this? And I think about, honestly, children don't take themselves too seriously. They love to laugh and to play and to have fun and to enjoy life. And children are vulnerable. It always amazes me when you think about children across the, the species of, uh, of the world and how different newborns are in the human race compared to, I think, virtually all the other races of animals. If you've ever seen a calf after it's born or a puppy or a kitten, you know, within just a brief amount of time, they're getting up on their feet and they're walking and they're, the calves are, are starting to eat. You know, they're, they're, they're able to exist a bit and, and very soon they're able to, to find their own way. I doubt if when Jeff and Andrea get home from the hospital, they're going to set a little Addison on the floor and say, look, the fridge is full. This house is yours. Go get whatever you want. You know, just let us know if you need anything. But uh, it's all there. You know, this, feel, feel, I want you to feel at home here and just feel free to get whatever. No, be like, they can't do that. They can't even turn over. Much less crawl or walk to the refrigerator, much less find be able to get something to eat. Children are so vulnerable. And you think about that, and you realize that when you think about the vulnerability of children, unfortunately, it's probably why they are the most mistreated in most of the cultures of the world. And they're abused, and they're taken advantage of, and you know, we can ignore children. We can tune them out. And honestly, they're, they're powerless to do much about it. And we think about that as a characteristic of the kingdom. And we say, well, wait a second. I, I might have to be vulnerable. I might get taken advantage of. I might be mistreated. Yeah. That's the point. That's why it's so hard for us. 
Because it goes against the grain of everything in our lives that we have tried to develop when we think about greatness. And Jesus keeps bringing us back to being like children, serving, taking the lowest place. And it's hard for us. It's difficult for us to really grasp that truth. And yet it's what the kingdom is about. I think that we sometimes see glimpses of that and we say, well, there's a situation where I could give a little bit of myself or I'll take the second place here. And it's good to do that. But I think the call of Christ on us is to identify ourselves as childlike servants. That we embrace this, not just as something we do every so often, but as our identity in the kingdom of God. It's sometimes we, we sort of romanticize being a servant. And we think, well, you know, I could give of myself. And actually, people might think that was kind of cool. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you understanding your existence in my kingdom and how you relate to each other in the kingdom as being childlike servants. Maybe you, you saw the story or read the story about what happened at a, at a, I think it was a state dinner in Washington. And uh, the, it was back last year and uh, people were there from, you know, all the big shots from all over Washington. And one of the people at the dinner was Valerie Jarrett, who has been one of President Obama's friends for a long time in Chicago. And so he invited her to come to the dinner and she was seated at her table. And at some point during the dinner, she saw a waiter walking behind her and she just briefly turned her head and said, would you be able to get me a glass, a glass of wine? And the waiter said, sure, I'll be glad to do that. A few minutes later, the waiter came back, handed her the wine. She looked up at him and to her great horror, the person she had asked to get her wine was not one of the waiters, but actually Peter Sorelli, who was a four-star general and the second-ranking general in the entire United States Army. She was so embarrassed. I mean, you can imagine, you think back to, uh, you think of a, a scenario where you ask your boss to do some kind of menial task, not realizing it was your boss. She, you know, she just couldn't apologize enough. And he was awesome about it. He laughed and he said, eh, that's okay. And later in an email to CNN, he said, you know, it could have happened to anyone. Because the truth is, he said, I was in full dress uniform, two stripes down the side of my pants, and my pants looked a lot like the waiter's pants. And she was sitting and I was standing. And so that's really all she could see. It could happen to anyone. He said, we've laughed about it and we've talked about it. In fact, we're going to have her over for dinner in the near future. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better response than that. Because you can imagine some people completely reaming her out and embarrassing her to death in front of all these people. But as wonderful as that response was, if you look around the room and think, which of these people here is Jesus saying, be like? It's not a general who maybe every so often does something menial for a person. It's the waiters and the waitresses that no one knows, that serve the entire time. That's why they're there. And they go home anonymously. That's the kind of 
service that Jesus is calling us to. This idea that that we would I mean we that we would serve not just every so often, but embrace it as our identity. And where do we get that idea from? We get it from Jesus. I mean, he says to his disciples, which would you rather do? Who's greater? The one's at the table or the one who serves? I mean, it's the one at the table, of course. That's who we want to be. But I'm among you as one who serves. And no one deserves to sit at the table more than Jesus does. And yet he serves. His whole life is about serving. The incarnation, every moment of his existence, his death on the cross, all during that journey, he had the right to say, hey, I don't deserve this. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And you can't treat me like that. But he doesn't say it. Becomes a childlike servant that even takes him to the cross. Which which would you rather be? The the person sitting at the table as a king, being fed a, a king's meal, or the person serving the meal? Would you rather be the star uh, athlete who plays to the cheers of the crowd, or or the guy that? hands her a Gatorade when she comes off the court? Would you rather be the performer playing in front of a standing ovation? Or the guy who stands off to the side and pulls the curtain shut? We all know what we'd like to be. We all know what we, what we want to be. And Jesus says, I'm asking you, calling you, to be something different, more than what you want to be. I, I think part of our issue with this is that we have, we have come to believe that greatness is, is the result of what we do. It's, it's the result of, of what we are doing in our lives and that's what makes us feel great. And so we, but, and so we think, well, I, I can be great because I accomplished this task or, or I've gained this recognition or I've gotten to this place. And I'm reminded of what Craig Barnes writes in his book, Hustling God. He says, in seminary one day, his professor said to the class, every morning... When you wake up, give thanks to God that you are unnecessary. Every morning, give thanks to God that you are unnecessary. And Barnes says, I wrestled with that for 20 years, trying to figure that out. Because granted, I know God's the the great ruler of the universe, and he doesn't need me. And, And anything that I do, at some point, someone will come along and take my place doing it. And maybe they'll be better at it. But there's something inside of me that wants to believe that just a little part of me is necessary. But the old professor would say, no, your, your life's too important to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. And if being loved is tied to accomplishments, if being loved is tied to being necessary, then the moment our accomplishments fade, the moment we're no longer necessary, 
We're no longer loved. And if the cross tells us anything, it's that Christ comes and dies, not because we're necessary, not because we've accomplished anything, but simply because he loves us. And it is that love that leads us to begin to embrace what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God as childlike servants. And this is why Jesus can tell his disciples that the day will come when all of this this servanthood, all that you're sacrificing will be rewarded with a sense of eternal greatness that you can't even begin to imagine. And he basically is giving them a choice. You can, you can embrace sort of this puny greatness in this temporal earth or you can be a childlike servant and one day receive the eternal greatness of my kingdom. But it really comes down to embracing this lifestyle. Embracing this call as an identification of who we are. Gordon MacDonald says, you can tell you're becoming a servant by how you react when people treat you like one. I think it tells us something about what's going on in our hearts. And people, disciples who understand Jesus and his kingdom, see this call to childlike servanthood, not as something we have to do, but as something we get to do. Because it's being like Jesus. And what we're doing now is preparing us for what we will do for all eternity. You know, sometimes I think in our minds, we're thinking, all right, we'll serve now. And then when this life is done, we'll just toss that aside. And now we can really know greatness. And I think the scriptures tell us that what we're doing now is what we'll do then. We're preparing ourselves for that. And we will spend all eternity serving the Father and serving each other. Because this is something, this is a kingdom principle. This is an eternal principle about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Because this is like Christ. And so the writer of Philippians tells us that have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're not Jesus, but we are called to take up our cross and follow him. As I was pondering this idea, I was reminded of of the of the movie, the Poseidon Adventure. Some of you may have seen that. 
It's done in the 70s and remade just not too many years ago. It's the story of an ocean liner crossing the Atlantic when all of a sudden a storm hits it and a huge wave crashes into the ship and in the course of that flips the ship over, upside down. Lights go out. Everyone is confused and disoriented and uncertain exactly where they are and what they're doing. But there is a, 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 a pocket of air so that many of them are able to survive. But they're trying to figure out what to do. And the common consensus is to do what feels right, and that is to go to the top deck. But they've forgotten that the top deck is hundreds of feet underwater. And those who do that end up drowning. But there's a little child in the group who keeps saying to them, we need to go down into the belly of the ship. And they keep ignoring the child, ignoring the child, until finally they decide maybe the kid has a good idea. And they descend into the belly of the ship and by doing so actually end up on the surface of the water. And after pounding for a while, people hear them and they're rescued. In the kingdom of God, if we want to go up, we go down. And my challenge for us is this. That we would ask God to help us want an identity of being childlike servants. And that we would ask God to give us opportunities to live out childlike service. And that's a dangerous prayer because he will bring to us circumstances where we have lots of opportunities to do that. And to begin today looking for those opportunities. Opening our eyes to see every opportunity we can to exhibit the spirit of Christ in childlike servanthood as representatives of his kingdom. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us. We wrestle with this truth because it is so counterintuitive and countercultural. But it's clear that this is your call. Help us. Give us grace and strength to understand greatness and to live it like Christ. And we pray this through his name. Amen.